Hello everyone, Trish Guys here, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned from My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guys is not a legal professional, nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number two, I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly, I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger, feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit. So I recommend after listening to each episode, take a few minutes and think about what you've heard. What resonated with you? Do some things seem a bit more clear to you now? Or do you need to do a bit more digging? The whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things perhaps in a different light or for you to slow down or step back a little bit and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. On tonight's show, I'd like to talk about coercive control. That term is something you've probably seen a lot in the news lately with various stories, a lot of research, and it's really quite an important concept. It's a concept that's been around for years. It just hasn't been labeled until a few years ago. It's something that is important for people to recognize because it happens more often than you realize. Let's talk about what is coercive control. It's a pattern of behaviors that are meant to be intimidating, they're degrading, and they're controlling. The intent that people have when they use these behaviors is to isolate someone, to humiliate them, exploit them, or dominate them. And this happens in their everyday lives. Course of control, for the most part, we'll be talking about today in a form of intimate relationships and in families. It can also happen at work. It can happen at all sorts of relationships, on the playground, anywhere. So that's something to keep in mind that a lot of these concepts we'll be talking about are very applicable to everyday life. Carmen Gill, a professor at University of New Brunswick, explains coercive control as a set of power games. So it involves gaslighting, lying, blaming, cruelty, and intimidation. All those things that we don't necessarily recognize as a form of violence under the Criminal Code of Canada. There have been a lot of rumblings lately to try and change this. What course of control looks like to people is you'll see even in dating relationships when someone tries to isolate them from their family and friends. I've seen restriction to their access to money, food, medicine, even to birth control, damaging or threatening to damage property or hurting pets, making degrading comments, sending barrages of text messages, monitoring social media, preventing someone from going to work or to school or see their friends and family. 
In these situations, victims of coercive control are deprived of their autonomy. They don't have any freedom. The intent is to make sure that the abuser or the perpetrator controls that freedom. They want to strip that freedom away. They want to strip their independent sense of self away so that they can manipulate them into doing what they want them to do. Very cult-like behavior. The problem with it is that it's so insidious and it's so covert that most of us, without having the proper knowledge and the know-how, we don't recognize it when it's happening to others, but more importantly, when it's happening to ourselves. We often make excuses or we just don't simply see it. Some of the most intelligent people in the world and most educated people in the world, even in the domestic abuse industry, have it happened to them. No one is immune to this. The problem with that, too, is that we don't know it's happening to us sometimes, but also the long-term psychological effects are extremely devastating. It can take years and years of intensive therapy just to process everything that's happened, let alone heal from the trauma. There's a growing body of research that indicates that course of control can be a very early indicator of relationships that can escalate into physical violence and even homicide. A professor in the UK has actually developed a tool called the Homicide Timeline that looks at various stages of a relationship and various patterns of behavior, most of them in the realm of course of control, that lead to or can lead to homicide. So if you'd like a copy of it, feel free to email me, trish at trishguys.com, and I can send you a copy. The other day, I was reading an article uh, from the Globe and Mail. It was called, What is Course of Control? Why Understanding the Warning Sides is Key to Preventing Intimate Partner Violence. It was talking about femicides, so killing of women. And they said that researchers in Canada looked at the numbers from 215 to 219 and looked at how many homicides there were of women. And they found that coercive controlling behaviors were present in many of these instances. Then they went on to talk about how on average a woman is killed by an intimate partner every six days in Canada. And I knew it was high, but I didn't realize that numbers were that high. I found it very astounding. They also mentioned that across Canada, there were approximately 110,000 victims of police-reported intimate partner violence in 2020 alone, according to StatsCan. That's an underreport because as we know, many, many, many victims do not report for many reasons, but mostly for fear. That number that I was talking about, the 110,000 victims of intimate partner violence, about 80% were female victims. Now that's important. We talk a lot about female victims, but we're also looking at 20% are male victims. Predominantly, yes, women are victims of this violence, but we can't forget that men are victims to this violence too. And that they also have their own set of issues in terms of being believed you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have been in this situation and the predominant thought process is that you're a man. Really, how hurt could you possibly be? So it's, it's very hard for male victims as well. And keep in mind regarding the numbers that, as I mentioned before, coercive control is technically not illegal. So even if people are wanting to report a lot of these behaviors, they can report them, but they're not necessarily going to be registered as a complaint. And there's really not a whole lot at this point that police can do about it because it is not part of the criminal code. What are some of the warning signs you want to watch for? Because as I mentioned earlier, course of control can be very insidious, very covert. And a lot of people who engage in this behavior are very, very stealth about it. So it's not blatantly obvious. 
and the effects are not necessarily blatantly obvious. You're not walking around with a black eye or an arm in a sling, which makes it difficult for victims as well, especially because a lot of these perpetrators know how to behave appropriately in front of other people and are typically very charming and very alluring. And people have a tough time believing that a person such as that individual who's very charming will give you the shirt off his back, his volunteers with agencies around the city or with the church. How could they possibly be demeaning or belittling or abusive towards someone? And that prevents a lot of victims from speaking out because they do say, who's going to believe me? And especially if they're quite traumatized, which most of them are, and when they present the evidence or the information, they come off as emotional and damaged because they are and they've been traumatized and people tend to see them as hysterical and not believe what they're saying. So let's look at some of the red flags. One of the most obvious ones, and I think everybody knows about this one, is isolation from friends and family. So someone you know starts dating somebody and normally they're quite involved with their family and friends. You go out with them quite often, you text, you talk, but all of a sudden you start seeing less and less of them or they start making excuses as to why they can't spend any time with you. Or you may see that you're with somebody, but they're getting constant texts from their intimate partner. And that person's asking them, where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing? That constant monitoring of activity or whereabouts. Sometimes people use monitoring devices like spyware on computers or GPS. There are threats, belittling, humiliation, gaslighting. Gaslighting is crazy making. You know, I've heard of people, for instance, they set an alarm to get up for work the next morning. They fall asleep. Their partner shuts off the alarm. So then the person doesn't wake up in time and they're late for work and they swore they set the alarm and this keeps happening. And they start thinking that they're going crazy because they don't know why this is happening. They wouldn't put two and two together and think that their, their partner is trying to sabotage them. There's also sexual coercion trying to coerce you into doing things you don't want to do or when you don't want to do them. Control your use of social media, threats to harm you, a child, a pet. This one's a big one too, and people don't realize this is coercive control. Threaten suicide, threaten to harm themselves. That we are taught to take those threats very seriously because that person needs help and they need support. But coercive controllers will use that as a tactic to play the victim and to control your behavior. So if you leave, I'll kill myself. If you leave, I'll take the children and you'll never see them again. Those kinds of threats. And that, of course, any one of us would change our behavior to prevent that from happening. Others are restricted access to money, even their own money, their own paychecks, or food and drink, where they cannot eat or buy or drink anything unless they have the express permission of their partner. Is coercive control illegal in Canada? And it's not as of yet, but there are a few bodies that are trying to change that. Back in October of 2020, an MP by the name of Randall Garrison worked with various parties, including Andrea Silverstone from Suggest, brought forward a private member's bill to criminalize coercive control in Canada. I've read that uh, Randall Garrison grew up in a household where coercive control was present and his mother was coercively controlled. And so this concept and this uh, bill is quite important to him. This bill is put forth with the premise that conviction would be punishable by imprisonment for up to five years. 
It was going well. It passed the first reading, but then the federal election happened and the bill died. So now there are efforts being made to revitalize the bill through the Justice Committee and with Marcy Ian, the Minister for Women and Gender Equality. Other countries around the world have beat us to the finish line in taking action against coercive control. England introduced legislation way back in 2015, but unfortunately, lately they've been having a great deal of difficulty in dealing with the amount of femicides and homicides and coercive control in that country. And I'm not sure what's going on, but uh, obviously, as we know, laws don't change behavior. It's just one step in the process. France and Ireland, Hawaii and California have also followed suit and made coercive control a criminal offense. The most prolific coercive control legislation was passed in Scotland in 2018. That has become the standard by which other jurisdictions want to try and emulate. Their Domestic Abuse Act doesn't just stop at criminalizing coercive control. It actually recognizes the impact it has on children, which is very, very important and we'll be talking about later in the show today. It goes so far as to impose harsher penalties if children have been exposed to the abuse. Canada is starting to take coercive control seriously, and it's making strides to protect Canadians from coercive control. They're trying to enact measures for perpetrators to become accountable for those controlling actions. In March of 2021, several Divorce Act amendments were put into place for judges to more appropriately assess the best interest of the child. Now, remember from previous shows, I talked about best interest of the child is the predominant concept or principle that guides a judge's decisions and rulings when children are involved in a family law case. One such amendment of the Divorce Act is the inclusion of coercive control in the definition of family violence. So prior to March 2021, coercive control was not mentioned nor was it considered if it did occur. It was never considered by a judge. So previously, family violence directed at someone other than a child also was not a prime factor when determining parenting time. However, according to the amendments, even if the coercive control or the abuse is directed towards the other parent and not the children per se, that is a factor when a judge is making decisions about parenting time. Canada finally recognizes that children are affected either directly or indirectly by abuse and the various forms of abuse. In total, the presence of family violence and coercive control is now one of the determining factors when making parenting decisions and must be considered when judges are determining the best interest of the child, which is a huge boost in terms of protecting families and children in the family legal system. Granted, it is just a law, and it doesn't change behavior. It doesn't necessarily change judges' behavior. It doesn't necessarily change perpetrators' behavior, but it is one step in the process. As I've mentioned, laws in and of themselves don't change behavior, And there have been a couple of stories of late that show that we need some mechanisms to change judges' behaviors and judges' mindsets, because that's key. Behavior is one thing, but mindset is really, really important as well. Judges and lawyers are trained in law. They're not trained in psychology, not in family dynamics, definitely not in ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences that relate to trauma. They are not well-versed or trained in domestic violence or coercive control. So it's great to have this Divorce Act that dictates what they should look at. But if a person doesn't know what coercive control looks like, they know what physical violence looks like, but they don't know what coercive control looks like, it's not going to do us a whole lot of good. And to go one step further, do we know 
what will constitute as evidence of coercive control. How far back can we go? These kinds of things. These are all elements that come into play that can cause problems when victims are trying to seek restitution or protection. So it's unrealistic to expect judges to adequately determine the best interest of the child if they're not properly educated on those factors that comprise that best interest assessment. Many of you may remember the case about two years ago of a little child named Kira who was found at the bottom of a cliff with her father in an alleged murder-suicide. Her mother, Jennifer Kagan, has been trying to institute a change to protect other children and mothers like herself. She is promoting the passage of Kira's Law, or Bill C-233, which would expand training for judges to include domestic violence and coercive control training. One thing I don't understand, like I think this is a fantastic idea, but what I don't understand is why in this country, in many countries, we will institute a law such as we have in the Divorce Act, but there has been no planning and no institution of any training. I just don't quite understand that, and nor do I understand why the judges are not asking for this training. Never would I want to be in a position of any kind to make any decisions without the proper training, but particularly when I am dealing with people's safety and in particular children's safety. It boggles my mind. It will always boggle my mind. And I, I'd like to call judges to action to stand up and request this, demand this, as opposed to waiting for the citizens of Canada to be begging for this and for children like Kira to lose their lives because there hasn't been enough protection put into place. So just a little bit about that story. The courts failed to protect Kira from her father's abuse. Jennifer Kagan, Kira's mother, brought the evidence to the court numerous times. And ironically, her husband is a family lawyer. So quite adept, obviously, at dealing with issues in the family legal system. But neither of them could get the judge to see the magnitude of this abuse and the importance of protecting her four-year-old child from this abuse. On one occasion, the judge actually said that the abuse that the mother was receiving will be ignored because the judge did not believe that that had any effect on the parenting of that child, which, as we know, and research has shown, and now the Divorce Act actually stipulates that it does, in fact, have a direct influence on the child and a direct effect on the child. All the science and research tells us that. Another erroneous belief that's held by many, many people, but also by the courts, is that once a person leaves the relationship, the abuse will stop. So we just think that so many people say, why didn't she just leave? Or why didn't he leave if it was so bad? But first of all, it's not that easy, particularly when there's coercive control involved, because we often don't know we're controlled until it feels like it's almost too late, until we're so in so deep, we don't know how to get out then how do we explain to people? Because we've become isolated. So whom do we go to for support? Who's going to believe us? But the most important point is, one of the most, if not the most dangerous time for a person in an abusive relationship is when they leave. That's when the control and the abuse ramps up and often leads to lethal consequences. But also, if it doesn't lead to lethal consequences, what people don't seem to realize is that just because you leave the perpetrator doesn't mean the abuse stops. In fact, in my experience, personally and professionally, it gets ramped up big time because now they can't control you as well as they could have under the same roof. Now they panic. Post-separation abuse is extremely common. 
There isn't a week that goes by where I'm not dealing with that on a daily basis almost with clients. And I dealt with it for 12 years. And if I hadn't gone no contact, I guess about a year ago, I'd still be experiencing it. It's, it's, it's really quite uncanny. And a lot of people have trouble understanding that. Post-separation abuse looks like all sorts of different things. It can be legal abuse. It can be dragging a person to court over and over again. It could be having them incur extraordinary legal costs for no reason, refusing to mediate, refusing to discuss. Uh, it could be financial abuse, refusing to disclose information, controlling the parent through the child, making the children pawns in their whole scheme, stalking, harassment, all sorts of different things. The list is endless. Another dangerous and false belief is that women claim abuse in order to prevent fathers from gaining custody. And research shows that that couldn't be farther from the truth. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it is extremely rare for women to do that, for victims to do that. It uh, Most victims actually, we find, don't try and seek sole custody. It's typically the perpetrators. With Kira's Law in place, the hope is to prevent such cases as the recent one that you may have read about, the alleged abduction case in Saskatchewan, where the father abducted his six-year-old daughter and refused to return her to her mother, which is in a, a court order, so he refused to obey a court order, and was missing for months, I think since last November or December, and his premise was that he was trying to protect her from getting the COVID vaccine. Since then, he has been found, and so has the daughter, and she has been returned to her mother. There were numerous opportunities for the judge to protect the child, and the judge did not take those opportunities. And the concerning point about that is this case happened after the Divorce Act amendments, as did the case that you may have read just the other day. Uh, it's a case in Lethbridge, where Lethbridge judge refuses to uphold a parenting agreement when the father refuses to return the child to the mother. Uh, he's a former police officer, and the woman, the mother, has asked for the parenting agreement to be followed, the parenting court order, and he has not followed it, and the judge has not enforced that because he had formally ruled against her, and therefore she needed to pay legal fees, and she had yet to pay it. I think it was $4,000. So he said that he would not uphold the parenting agreement, which is blatantly contrary to what the law says, because that is not in the best interest of the child. And he also was refusing to allow her to add a police enforcement clause. So there truly is no way for her to enforce this parenting. And again, this case is after the Divorce Act amendments have been put into place. These two cases alone exemplify the dangers of what occurs when you have an ill-informed or antiquated mindset of decision makers not just judges, but lawyers as well, social workers, psychologists, divorce coaches, it doesn't matter. Anyone who is in the arena of family law or of child protection needs to be trauma-informed, needs to be coercively controlled-informed and domestic abuse-informed. A little bit more about that case that I was talking about in Lethbridge, it boggles the mind, really, the things that are happening. Despite the father facing criminal charges of criminal harassment, uttering death threats, Amongst others, he also had an emergency protection order placed against him. Despite that, the judge still awarded him 50-50 custody, completely disregarding the fact that the law now does uphold the fact that if one party is abusing the other party, it does affect the child. It also speaks to the concept that so many people fail to realize that 
you may think you were a great parent when it's just you and the child, but if you were abusing the other parent, whether it's the mother or the father, it's irrelevant. You are not a good parent. I was speaking to a few clients a while back and they kept saying, but you know, they're a good dad, they're a good mom. And then they would go on to tell me all of the ways that they're being abusive towards them. And so I had to correct them and say, no, no, they are not mutually exclusive. You cannot be a good parent while abusing their other parent. It is not possible. You are teaching that child that that is how you treat people. You are indirectly affecting that child because the child will witness it and will see it. But also you're affecting that other parent's ability to parent in the way that they do well and in the way that the child needs. And that is not okay. Further comments about that case, despite the EPO, meaning there was emergency protection order because the mother was afraid of the father, the judge ordered that when the parents exchange the child, they must do so in person. I, I don't even know what to say about that. And then when the father refused to return the child to the mother, the mother, of course, sought assistance from the court, but the system failed. Not only did the judge not enforce the parenting order, didn't allow a police enforcement clause to be put into place, but also ruled that he would be the sole presider over the case, so she could not go seek another judge's ruling. But I think one of the most egregious issues there is the fact that the judge who is mandated to uphold a parenting order unless there are good reasons as to why has refused to because of non-payment of legal fees. That is definitely not in the best interest of the child. And as Jennifer Koshin, who is a University of Calgary law professor who specializes in family violence and family law, says that this case appears to have many of the hallmarks of what is often called legal abuse or systems abuse or court harassment. One of the things that I want to briefly talk about now too is why course of control or abuse can be traumatizing to kids and, and what can happen, even if they are not directly exposed to it. There's something called epigenetics, and I'm not sure if you've heard of this before. It's a relatively new scientific term, and it's such a neat concept, scary concept though. As we know, domestic abuse creates trauma. And trauma, we know too, can damage the brain. What we didn't know up until recently is that it can damage the brain for generations. Epigenetics is a scientific concept that states that we are an embodiment not only of our experiences, but those of our ancestors. Think about that for a second. So our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, think of all that they lived through and all they've experienced through the depression, the war, alcoholism, abuse, whatever. That affects our makeup. Pretty wild, isn't it? We know that we're all born with a set of genes. And research has taught us that our environment and experiences dictate how those genes operate. So which ones switch on, which ones switch off. But epigenetics indicates that our ancestors' experience can influence and change how our genes operate as well. They essentially leave a mark on our DNA and influence how our genes operate, which can be great, but can also be troublesome when trauma is involved. When trauma imprints on the DNA, it can translate into a litany of illnesses, health issues, and even undesirable behaviors. Interestingly, studies have shown that many cancers, autoimmune diseases, psychological disorders, addictions, respiratory, cardiovascular, reproductive, behavioral illnesses are all influenced by epigenetics. Just to be clear, though, our DNA doesn't change. It's just how our DNA is expressed that changes. So just like we may inherit our mother's, I don't know, extra long second toe, we can also inherit our grandmother's predisposition towards anxiety 
caused by her time in an orphanage as a child. But just like we can inherit a predisposition to anxiety, we can also inherit a predisposition to determination, to resilience, to strength. So it's not all bad. And it's also not irreversible either. There are things that we can do, things that we can do on a grander scale, but also on a smaller scale. And why this is important is because obviously you don't want to have to live with the continued trauma, but we also don't want to pass it down onto our children, our grandchildren, and and so on. On a grander scale, what we can do to address the trauma, we can engage in certain things. And I have, I'm a big proponent of these modalities because I have used almost all of them. EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is phenomenal for trauma. I've done it numerous times and I cannot say enough about it. I've also engaged in ART, so ART, accelerated resolution therapy. It's similar to EMDR, phenomenal. And uh, there's also hypnosis. I myself have not tried that, but I've heard a lot of great things. Neurofeedback, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I've done as well, CBT. Any of those modalities that are specifically related to trauma can help process and purge the trauma over time. And keep in mind too, when you're doing this, it is a process. It's not a one and done oftentimes, but there are other smaller things you can do to boost the effects of those treatments. Simple things like healthy diet. And I know you've heard this a thousand times, but it's true. What you put into your mouth does affect what goes on in your head. Same with physical activity. It's good for the body, but it's extremely good for the brain. Challenge. Pushing yourself out of your comfort zone is important. We tend to, especially after being traumatized, kind of curl in and want to cocoon and insulate ourselves. And that's not a good thing. It may feel good at the moment, but we need to challenge. We need to push. We need to move it or lose it. We also need novelty. We need to expose our brain to new things on a daily basis if possible. And that's why the last two years of COVID, I think, was difficult for a lot of people is because there wasn't a lot of novelty. And and that has, has great implications for relationships as well, too. Novelty is important. Laughter, that's a big one. Your brain, your body, all the good chemicals in your brain need for you to laugh because it feels good and it releases all the great chemicals that you need in your body. And the last big one would be connection. Your brain needs to be connected to others. We as human beings need to be connected to others. That's it in a nutshell about coercive control. I have so many more things to talk about. In future episodes, I want to delve into some of the different behaviors that you can experience or your children can experience and what we can do about that, how to cope with it, how to deal with it. There's some really good information that we can talk about. That gives you a synopsis of what course of control is all about and what we're trying to do in Canada to try and protect Canadians as much as possible. I really feel like it's a great step in the right direction because life is all about if you're going to make progress, you really need to change mindsets. And in order to to enact a lot of these laws, we are having to change people's mindsets. And even if it's one person at a time, it makes a difference. As Neil Armstrong once said, when you get a different vantage point, it changes your perspective. It allows you to see things you should have seen a long time ago. And in actuality, we all as a society should have seen a long time ago that this behavior is wrong, it's dangerous, it's damaging, and it does affect society as a whole. So many people feel that it doesn't affect them. A recent study showed that many 
Canadians, I think it's 40%, feel that intimate partner violence does not affect them and it's none of their business. When in actual fact it is, when you live in a society and the societal members are being affected with something, it does affect everyone. So until next time, I hope you all have a great week. Shit I Learned from My Divorce is written by me, Trish Guys, and produced by Barry Guys. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Guys. I would love to have you tell a friend or a family member about this podcast, and you can help me share the important concepts I cover by leaving a rating and review of Shit I Learned from My Divorce on Google Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguys.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trish Guys and on Facebook and Instagram at Trish Guys Divorce Coach. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned from My Divorce with me, Trish Guys, Divorce and Pre-Mediation Coach. Until next time, be good to yourself and to your kids.